In the modern age of political discourse, it's not uncommon to hear something such as this. Look, I never forgot what President Kennedy said about going to the moon. He said we're going, you know why? Because we refuse to postpone. Let's not postpone and get out of the rain. God bless you all. Thank you. Or maybe this. No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. She's, she's asking a question. Don't be rude. The man we are going to talk about today was more of this style. America did not invent human rights. In a very real sense, it's the other way around. Human rights invented America. Often considered one of the worst presidents of the modern era, as well as one of the most successful post-presidencies, Jimmy Carter is an enigma. Carter had one of the highest IQs of any U.S. president. His IQ is reportedly 153, just shy of a genius. Born in rural Plains, Georgia on October 1st, 1924, from a town of only 600 people. As a child, he used to grow peanuts and sell them in the local markets. He would prepare them and then walk to the town where he would stay until he sold all of his peanuts. He would profit about $1 a day, the same amount as a grown field worker of the time. His father taught him a valuable lesson as a child. When cotton reached its lowest point, his father advised him to invest his money into it and save it for when the cotton crop returned to normalcy. As a child growing up in segregated rural Georgia, Carter grew up playing with the African-American children that worked for his father. He wrote of himself as a young child. As a child, I never thought about social or legal distinctions, about our white family and our African-American families that surrounded us in archery, the name of the city. I knew, of course, that our house was larger than theirs, that my father gave the orders on the farm, and that we had an automobile or pickup truck while they had a wagon or a mule. I assumed these advantages accrued to us because Daddy worked harder and was fortunate in owning the land in which we lived. I took for granted that having separate schools and churches was just a matter of custom. I didn't realize only white people could vote in an election or serve in a jury, and I never heard anyone comment about these legal differences. He remembers before the age of 14, he and his black friends used to act like children, playing, wrestling, always fighting to be the leader. The leader normally was the person who won the last competition, and then things changed. At the age of 14 or so, he remembers approaching a pasture gate. They went to open it for Jimmy, and then stepped back. He was confused, and thought they must be playing a prank on him. Maybe they set up a tripwire. He now believes probably they were heeding the words of their parents. From that time forward, there was always a distinction between them, friend and friend, race and race. Carter, unlike many of our modern presidents, wasn't born into wealth. He also wasn't poor. His mother was a private nurse, at one point earning approximately $6 for a 24-hour duty. His father was a well-respected, shrewd businessman and farmer. Carter, as a young man, worked hard. He read a lot and graduated high school with all A's. He dreamed of joining the Navy after receiving numerous postcards and photos from his uncle, who was in the Navy, and traveled all over the world. After high school in 1941, he started undergraduate coursework in engineering at Georgia's Southwestern College in nearby Americus, Georgia. The following year, he transferred to the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, and he earned admission to the Naval Academy in 1943. He was a good student, but was seen as reserved and quiet, in contrast to the Academy's culture of aggressive hazing of freshmen. While at the Academy, Carter fell in love with Rosalind Smith, a friend of his sister Ruth. The two married shortly after his graduation in 1946. 
Right after his marriage, he joined the Navy as a commissioned ensign, the lowest officer rank. Carter served on battleships and submarines. He rose from the ranks, from ensign to lieutenant. He recalls in his autobiography, A Brush with Death, I was standing watch on bridge about two hours after midnight, with my feet on the slatted wooden deck, when I saw an enormous wave, dead ahead. I ducked down beneath the chest-high steel protector that surrounded the front of the bridge and locked my arms around the safety rail. The wave, however, smothered the ship. The wave, however, smothered the ship, several feet above Carter's head and he was ripped loose, lifted up and carried away from the ship. I could only swim around in the turbulent water. Striving to reach the surface, this was my first experience with impending death. But when the wave receded, I found myself on the main deck, directly aft of the bridge, and was able to cling to our five-inch gun, he writes. I realized how fragile was my existence, and how fallible were even the most dedicated and experienced seamen. Carter distinguished himself in the Navy, and was hand-chosen to work on America's first nuclear submarine program. In 1953, after less than a year of working on America's nuclear submarine program, Carter received a message from his home. His father was dying. He had to return home to work on his peanut farm. Jimmy, honoring his father, returned to Plainsville, Georgia, to take his place on the peanut farm. His wife, Rosalind, was furious at him for leaving behind such prestige. Shortly after, Jimmy unexpectedly decided to run for Senate in his home state of Georgia. He was successful, running a very minimalist and unfunded campaign. After two terms in the Georgia Senate, he decided to run for state governor. Facing a segregationist named Lester Maddox, Maddox was famous for brandishing an axe handle to keep blacks away from his chicken restaurant. Jimmy ran by promising better schools, better hospitals, better roads, and a more competent government. The campaign was heated, and in the end, Carter lost by less than half a percentage point. After his loss, Jimmy was crushed. Carter, who had always been a religious man, had his faith shaken. He decided that Christ would always come first over politics in the future. He became a born-again Christian. After that, he went north and began spreading the gospel. He decided a few years later to run for governor again, this time running against a corporate Democrat who appealed to the black vote. Carter, having learned from his defeat to Maddox, didn't. He ran as a white populist. He was opposed to busing. He was in favor of private schools. He would invite segregationist George Wallace to Georgia to give a speech. He wasn't supporting segregationists, but he was flirting with them. Jimmy pulled a big switcheroo, and after winning his gubernatorial campaign, quickly changed his message. He promoted racial equality and an end to racism. Many of his segregationist supporters were displeased. In his inaugural address, he spoke of change and to ending discrimination. As governor, he was quite liberal and made several changes, including prison reform. He put several portraits of African-American leaders in the gubernatorial residence and was supportive of women's rights. He shifted the focus to energy problems and injustice. At this time in American politics, roughly 100 years after the Civil War, Southern Democrats were all but written out of American presidential races. Seen as renegades and outsiders, they were not heeded in D.C. Jimmy wasn't deterred, and shortly after he decided to run for president, the virtually unknown peanut farmer from nowhere Georgia, Jimmy Carter, was running for the presidency. Carter had the appeal of character. The country was traumatized after Nixon and Watergate. Carter took the Democratic nomination as a shock. In the beginning, running at about 5% of the vote, he rapidly rose up to 70%. The post-war U.S. economy dealt with stagflation. In economics, stagflation or recession inflation is a situation in which the inflation rate is high, 
the economic growth slows and unemployment remains steadily high. Morale was low from the quick collapse of the South Vietnamese, which had occurred the year before. No matter who was competing for the White House, it was looking tough for Republican incubate President Gerald Ford, who damned himself even more by pardoning the crook, his predecessor Richard Nixon. The Nixon pardon was controversial. Critics derided the move and claimed a corrupt bargain had been struck between the men. That Ford's pardon was granted in exchange for Nixon's resignation, elevating Ford to the presidency. Still, in spite of all of this, Carter was completely unknown, a heavily religious man. It didn't appeal to mainstream America. Carter wanted to appeal to a broader range of people and not come off as such a goody two-shoes, so he gave an interview to Playboy magazine. Carter during the interview spoke frankly and spoke on many subjects. The Southern Baptist spoke on his lack of fear in getting assassinated. The reason he said was his Christian faith, which led to a strong discussion on the Christian subject of sin and redemption. The pious Carter responded to a question rather awkwardly. I've looked on a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. This shocked the nation, who saw the devout Carter as pure and clean. BBC radio commentator Alistair Cook opened at the time that the confessions were a liability, not because Americans looked down on someone who admitted to sin, but because the admission seemed to come from an unfamiliar world. The world of a wash-in-the-blood Southern Baptist. They gave us, he said, the uncomfortable and growing feeling that we didn't quite know who Carter was or what he was really up to. Time magazine accounted it among the top 10 unfortunate political one-liners. This moment tanked Carter in the polls. Before the Playboy interview, Carter was indicated in every poll to take the 1976 presidential election. It should have been a landslide victory for Carter. The situation was tense until the presidential debates. Carter was saved from probably the worst political debate remark in U.S. history, uttered by Ford. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. I, I'm sorry, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying mo most of the countries there and, and, and making sure with their troops that it's, a, that it's a communist zone, whereas on our side of the line, the Italians and the French are still flirting with I don't believe, uh, Mr. Frankel, that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. Each of those countries is independent, autonomous. It has its own territorial integrity. And the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union. As a matter of fact, I visited Poland, uh, Yugoslavia, and Romania to make certain that the people of those countries understood that the President of the United States and the people of the United States are dedicated to their independence, their autonomy, and their freedom. Governor Carter, I have your response. Well, in the first place, I'm not criticizing His Holiness the Pope. I was talking about Mr. Ford. They, um... This blunder saved the presidential election for Jimmy Carter. The virtually unknown Southern Baptist from Georgia won the election and became the 39th U.S. president by one of the closest margins in American history. 
Although the two were adversaries both politically and ideologically, Ford and Carter would go on to form an intimate relationship. During Carter's presidency, Ford received monthly briefs by President Carter's senior staff on international and domestic issues and was always invited to lunch at the White House whenever he was in D.C. Their close friendship developed after Carter had left office. Until Ford's death, Carter and his wife Rosalind visited the Ford's home frequently. Jimmy Carter was a breath of fresh air for the American people. He walked to the White House on the street with the people. Carter wanted to keep his image as a man of the people. His wife was invited to the presidential meetings. His daughter Amy went to public school. And her best friend was a Chilean cook's child. After the lies of the Nixon and LBJ administrations, he was perfect for the role. The honest, good-intentioned outsider who was going to bring in new people to fill his cabinet. He was going to put human rights first and foremost. For myself and for our nation, I want to thank my predecessor for all he has done to heal our land. This inauguration ceremony marks a new beginning, a new dedication within our government. Peoples more numerous and more politically aware are craving and now demanding their place in the sun, not just for the benefit of their own physical condition, but for basic human rights, the passion for freedom is on the rise. Tapping this new spirit, there can be no nobler nor more ambitious task for America to undertake on this day of a new beginning than to help shape a just and peaceful world that is truly humane. And we will fight our wars against poverty, ignorance, and injustice. The world is still engaged in a massive armaments race, and we will move this year a step toward our ultimate goal, the elimination of all nuclear weapons from this earth. I would hope that the nations of the world might say that we had built a lasting peace based not on weapons of war, but on international policies which reflect our own most precious values. These are not just my goals, and they will not be my accomplishments but the affirmation of our nation's continuing moral strength and our belief in an undiminished, ever-expanding American dream. Thank you very much.
Carter's inaugural address emphasized his focus on human rights and peace. On the first day of his presidency, Carter pardoned all Vietnam War draft evaders by issuing Proclamation 4483. Carter brought in a team of outsiders for his cabinet, which scared the establishment Democratic Party. After a short time in the White House, he addressed his first major problem, energy. He gave a fireside speech asking the people of the USA to waste less. He led by example, installing solar panels onto the White House, turning off air conditioning, and using more energy-efficient forms of transportation. Energy was what he put first and foremost. A reason for this was the U.S.'s dependence on foreign oil, and what deleterious effects it could have on the U.S. economy, as demonstrated by the still-in-memory 1973 gas crisis. He used his Christian beliefs to bring humility to the White House. Food was more simplistic, and liquor was no longer served at gatherings. Carter refused to be corrupt. He was against quid pro quo. If someone tried offering him a deal in exchange for something, he was immediately turned off by it. This would hurt him, as the swamp that is Washington, D.C. saw him as suspicious and didn't trust him. Carter was not a Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal Democrat. He was not an LBJ with his great society. Carter was a centrist. He isolated the leftist wing of the Democratic Party by his refusal to increase spending. Carter pledged he would not increase the debt and intended on sticking to that. Many Democrats wanted to return to instituting new social programs. Carter would not. His goal was to cut budgets and reduce the deficit dramatically. The Democratic Party needs to remove the stigma of unjustified spending, Carter said. Carter's blunt, easy-to-understand way of speaking made him attractive to the American people. His popularity skyrocketed in his early days in office. One of Carter's first moves was to improve relations with Latin America. Latin America had always had a mixed relationship with the American continent superpower, the United States. Carter wanted to show good relations and negotiated the Torrijos-Carter Treaties, whereby the Panama Canal, built and paid for by the USA and on Panamanian soil, would be returned to Panama within the century. It was a very controversial move. The Conservative Party was enraged at Carter, giving away vital American assets, 